Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently working our way through the book of Isaiah. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Tonight we are in Isaiah 6, which begins with the phrase, in the year of King Uzziah's death. And this is a really jam-packed portion of the book of Isaiah that we're about to look at. So we're really going to examine it in three sections. And I don't know if we'll get all three sections tonight. We will try. First, we're going to look at some of the background of King Uzziah so that you are more familiar with who he is. And then we are going to look at the vision that Isaiah saw, the vision of God high and lifted up and the sort of details of that vision. And then we're going to look at the commission that Isaiah is given in order to accomplish what God has determined for the nation of Israel and for the Jews in particular. But then we are also going to have to look at the New Testament recitations of that vision and of that commission because Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the book of Acts all quote that commission in explaining why it is that the Jews did not accept their Messiah. So there are very far-reaching implications from what we're about to read. And what we're going to see behind it, once again, is God's absolute sovereignty. You just can't go read the Bible anywhere without seeing God's sovereignty. And I wonder sometimes how it is that people can read this section of the book of Isaiah, as popular as it is, and not see just the overwhelming sovereignty of God in blinding a whole people group for several hundred years so that they would not recognize their Messiah when he comes to the planet, so that they would ultimately kill him and reject him, so that the Messiah would die to pay the sin penalty for all those who God had chosen since before the foundation of the world, all of these things were so exact that they were determined by an absolutely sovereign God before he did anything so that the outcome would be exactly what God said the outcome was going to be. And it's just impossible to avoid that. So let's start tonight by reading a little bit of background about King Uzziah. And this will also give us some indication of why King Uzziah's death was significant, if indeed it was significant. So turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 26. The whole chapter is about King Uzziah. It will give you some idea how successful Uzziah was as a king who ruled for 52 years. But it will also demonstrate the undoing of Uzziah and how he died a rather ignominious death. So starting in 2 Chronicles, chapter 26, verse 1, and all the people of Judah 
took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and they made him king in the place of his father Amaziah. He built Eloth and restored it to Judah after the king slept with his fathers. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. And he continued to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding through the vision of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God prospered him. So far, really good. So far, he has Zechariah as his prophet. We have read the prophecies of Zechariah. Well, now we know when those occurred. Those occurred during the time that Uzziah was king. And Uzziah listened to him. And, and as a result, he walked with the Lord and God prospered him. He also succeeded in war as long as he walked with God. Starting at verse 6, it says, Now he went out and he warred against the Philistines. And he broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities in the area of Ashdod and among the Philistines. And God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and the Mayanites. The Amorites also gave tribute to Uzziah and his fame extended to the border of Egypt and he became very strong. Moreover, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate and at the valley gate and at the corner buttress, and he fortified them, and he built towers in the wilderness and hewed many cisterns, for he had much livestock, both in the lowland and in the plain. He also had plowmen and vine dressers in the hill country and the fertile fields, and he loved the soil. Moreover, Uzziah had an army ready for battle, which entered combat by divisions, according to the number of their muster or the number of their gathering. Prepared by Jael, the scribe, and Maasiah, the official, under the direction of Hananiah, one of the king's officers. The total number of the heads of the households of valiant warriors was 2,600. And under their direction was an elite army of 307,500 who could wage war with great power and help the king against his enemies. Moreover, Uzziah prepared for all the army shields and spears, helmets, body armor, bows, and sling stones. And in Jerusalem, he made engines of war invented by skillful men to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. Hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he was strong. So far, all good reports about Uzziah. 52 years as a king, and for most of those years, Jerusalem was prosperous, and they were safe, and they were at peace, and he was able to defend them. He was able to defeat their enemies. God was with him. So far, really, really good king. So then what happened to him? Like most human beings, when they are successful, 
they get raised up in pride. And that is exactly what happened to Uzziah. Starting at verse 16, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And he was unfaithful to the Lord his God, for he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, the king is not allowed to do that. God is very clear about what prophets do, what priests do, what kings do. They are all given their particular assignments, and they're not allowed to go into areas that are not their particular assignment. But King Uzziah felt that God was with him in everything that he did, in everything that he touched, he succeeded. So he decided to go in and intervene before God and burn incense. Now, you might think that that was just a minuscule infraction. But what he did was that he entered the temple where he didn't belong, where only the Levites belonged. And why did only the Levites belong there? Because God said so. Because God assigned the tribe of the Levites to work in the temple. And he was not of the Levites. So he just took it upon himself rather presumptuously and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now the altar of incense was regularly cleansed. It was a holy object. It was not to be touched by anything that was unclean. And the king, like it or not, regardless of his own estimation of himself, was unclean. And yet he went in and sacrificed on the altar of incense. Mm. And he may have been doing it with every good intention. He may have thought that it was just how he chose to worship God. This is how I am going to go and show God my dedication to him after everything he has done for me. After he has made me such a great and successful king, I am going to go and show my obeisance to him by burning incense on the altar of incense. Problem is, God didn't allow him to do that. He crossed a line that God did not allow him to cross. So even his good intentions didn't change how wrong he was for doing it. Because even in his good intentions, he was acting differently. He was acting contrarily to what God himself had told him to do. And that's why we are told very clearly that when he became strong, his heart became proud, so that he acted corruptly and he was unfaithful to the Lord as God. In what way was he unfaithful to the Lord as God? He didn't stay in his lane. He was there to be king, to govern the people, to make sure that the rules and the laws of God were upheld among the people. But it was not his job, it was not his position to intervene on the people's behalf before God in the temple. That was a job that was particularly given to the priests of the line of the Levites. So Azariah, says verse 17, Azariah the priest came in after him, and with him came 80 more priests of the Lord, valiant men. Sometimes you don't think of priests as being valiant men, but these men were valiant and they were ready to stand up for God's rights and for God's instruction, even in the face of the king. And they opposed Uzziah the king and said to him, 
It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated, that means set apart, made holy, cleansed, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have been unfaithful, and you will have no honor from the Lord God. Now, I'm willing to believe at that moment if Uzziah had recognized the error of his ways and said, oh, good instruction. I'm so glad you pointed that out, and, except he would have said it in Hebrew. If he had just said that and then left the temple, I think everything probably would have been okay. But here's what he did. Verse 19, but Uzziah, with a censer in his hand for burning incense, became enraged. He was angry at the priests for telling him he couldn't do something. And the thing he was being told that he could not do was something that God himself had said he could not do. Something that was not within his jurisdiction. Something that was not within his purview. You are not allowed to do this. And the priests of God very faithfully said to him, you're not allowed to do this. They were speaking it because God himself had said it. And he became enraged at them. And the picture is of him standing there with a censer in his hand, a censer for burning incense. And he was angry, enraged at them. And while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the altar of incense. I think it was more than just the burning the incense. I think it was burning the incense and then becoming so presumptuous that he became angry when he was properly corrected. He didn't accept the proper correction, probably because he assumed that he being the king was superior to the priests and that the priests should not be correcting him. Maybe he thought, oh, this is my right as the king to do as I please and my intentions are good. I'm just trying to honor God. Whatever his thinking was, whatever the rationale was, he did something that was not his to do, that was assigned to a different people group. He stepped over that line and he became angry when he was corrected. And even standing there in the very pure temple, and I just find the irony here thick, because he's in the temple where everything around him is ceremonially clean. And he is touching the altar of incense which is ceremonially clean, and he is unclean. And that is the reason he's not allowed to touch it. It's the reason he's not allowed to burn incense on that altar. It's because he's unclean. It is ceremonially clean. So how does God demonstrate that? By making him as unclean as you get and making him a leper. So not only was he forced out of the temple, he's forced out of Jerusalem. He's forced out of public life. He doesn't get to directly interact with or rule over anybody because his ego was such that he didn't realize that there were restrictions on him even though he was king. Uzziah, with the censer in his hand for burning incense, was enraged, and while he was enraged with the priests, the leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord. That's so ironic. 
in the very house of the Lord, in the temple of God, where everything is clean, that's where his uncleanness struck him. Right there beside the altar of incense, verse 20. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they hurried him out of there. And he himself also hastened to get out because the Lord had smitten him. Once you know that God's directly against you, once God is smiting you and you're aware of it, yeah, get out of there. Get out of that temple. That's what it took for him to understand that he had crossed a line that was not his to cross. So verse 21 tells us, and King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And he lived in a separate house. No longer can he live in the king's house. No longer can he interact with all the people who work in the king's house. All the servants. All the political officials. He can no longer interact with them because he's a leper until the day of his death. So he lived in a separate house being a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Which means he couldn't even go to the temple anymore. And Jotham, his son, was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. So even as King Uzziah was still alive and living in a separate house as a leper, his son Jotham, who would become king once Uzziah died, his son Jotham had the opportunity to begin exercising the rights of a king, even though his father was alive. And he lived in the king's house, and he worked there judging the people of the land. And now the rest of the acts of Uzziah, first to last, the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, has written. So Uzziah slept with his fathers. That means Uzziah died. And they buried him with his fathers in the field of the grave, which belonged to the kings. For they said, he is a leper. And Jotham, his son, became king in his place. That mark in time right there, that death, that burial, that happened in 740 B.C. We know that historically. So now we have a date stamp to work with. Go to the book of Isaiah now. We already know from Second Chronicles that Uzziah died and how he died and why he died, what led up to his death, how sick he had been before his death, and that's where we pick up in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And so when Isaiah writes, in the year that King Uzziah died, everybody he's writing this to would already know that whole backstory. They would all know the history of Uzziah. They would know why he died. They would know about the leprosy. They would know about his going into the temple and burning incense. They would know about his presumption against God. They would know that he was a good king and a successful king and that God had blessed Jerusalem as long as he was king. But at the end of his life, he was rebellious against God. All of that is wrapped up in the phrase, in the year King Uzziah died... Everybody knows that. They know that background and that history. That phrase, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. That phrase has been interpreted 
so many different ways, and people have given, have attempted to give explanations for the juxtaposition between the death of King Uzziah and Isaiah then seeing God high and lifted up. And there's a tremendous amount of speculation that gets inserted right there. It's possible, according to many commentators and preachers, it's possible that King Uzziah, after being king for 52 years and being such a successful king, you would have had a whole generation of people who lived in Jerusalem who only knew Uzziah as king. They didn't know any other king, and he was a highly successful king, and he had kept them safe, and he had made them prosperous. And so it's possible that people were holding Uzziah up as if he was the reason, he was the cause that they were safe and secure and well-fed and taken care of. And so then God would have become jealous of the fact that people weren't giving him the credit, but were giving Uzziah the credit. So maybe that's the purpose for the juxtaposition between when King Uzziah died, I then saw God high and lifted up so that God would have been creating an example for Isaiah where he was saying, okay, that king that very popular king, that very well-known king, he's dead, but look, I'm here. It's still me. I'm high and lifted up. I'm in control of all these things. Okay, that's one possible interpretation of it. And you can certainly find that interpretation very commonly in commentaries and on the Internet and in pulpits all over the world. I have also been to a couple of funerals of fairly notable people who had significant effect in the society around them. And the preacher who preached the funeral, I can think of at least two occasions right here, where they went right to this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw God high and lifted up, and they used that as the jumping off point in order to say, don't make too much of this man. Remember that it's God who is still alive, who is still sovereign, who is still on his throne. And so even when King Uzziah died or when this significant man died, it is still God that you need to be paying attention to. Okay, that might be a fair application of this passage. Or... It might just be a date stamp. We know when it is. It's 740 BC. We know the story of Uzziah. We know that Uzziah died a leper. We know Uzziah started at 16 and reigned for 52 years. We know all of that. And so for Isaiah to bring it up at this moment and say, in the year that King Uzziah died, he might simply be saying, this is when that happened. At the beginning of the book of Isaiah, he starts by giving us sort of an overview, a date stamp of his ministry and his prophetic visions. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's a date stamp. Isaiah is telling us, this is when I saw these visions. This is when God was revealing these things to me, and I was writing these things down. It was during the time of these kings. So he may simply be moving forward in the timeline and saying, okay, the previous visions, the previous things I wrote, that was while Uzziah was king. But now we're moving on to Jotham, and so Uzziah is dead, and now 
here's the next thing that I saw. So he may just simply be using it, as I said, as a date stamp so that we get the timeline of these successive revelations of Isaiah that are written in the book. Got it? Got it. If you decide that the proper interpretation of it is don't look after men, remember that God is always God even as men die, even as men rise up and fall again. If that's the interpretation, that's the way you read it, that's the way you apply it, I think that's a good lesson. I think that's a fair thing to say. Always look to God, regardless of the powerful men that come and go here on planet Earth. But if you say that, remember that that's just speculation. We're still trying to get through the first verse, and we're a half hour in. But in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In Ezekiel's vision, we see a very similar description of God riding on the clouds and wheels within wheels and the angelic host with him and the four living creatures before his throne. And the description of it is almost like God riding on a chariot of clouds. If you just kind of try to draw out what Ezekiel describes with the wheels and the throne. and the, It's a chariot with a throne with wheels inside wheels that go everywhere at once so that he's everywhere at once. He is high and he's lifted up. That's the first thing you need to know. The NASB says he is lofty and he is exalted. Either one of those words would have been enough. But this is the same Isaiah who tells us that as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how high God's thoughts and God's ways are. So he uses that comparison to say there's this great gulf of distance between what we human beings on the planet are like and what God is like. And the only way he can describe that difference is to say he is so far above us. He is so lofty. He is so exalted. He is so magisterial and yet so completely other than anything we experience here on planet Earth. He says, that's what I saw. That's the God that I saw. And just the very back of his robe, just the train of his robe, just the end of the robe was enough to just fill the temple. Seraphim stood over him. I am on the end of a Hebrew word pluralizes it. Like Elohim, that I am on the end of it, pluralizes it. So what we're seeing here is plural seraphs. Now that Hebrew word, pronounced seraph, actually, means to set something on fire. It means something that's burning or something that has been kindled to burn. It also may be referring to how they looked that they were bright and gleaming or copper-colored. So that gives you some indication of what the seraphim are. They're creatures, burning creatures, glowing creatures, bright and glowing, kind of hard to really describe. And yet it makes sense that they are the ones who are going to go to the altar and take burning coals off it 
because they themselves are the burning creatures. Seraphim stood above him, each one having six wings, which seems like four too many. Two would have been adequate if all they were supposed to do was fly. But the other four wings are given to them because with two, they covered their face. Now, there's a lot of ways to interpret that, but what we know for certain is the seraphim who are in the very presence of God cover their face before God. I don't know if that is an act of shamefacedness before God. I don't know if that's an indication that they're not able to look upon something, even though they themselves are bright and burning. The brightness, the lightness of God is too much for them to see. We're not told any of that. All we know is two of their wings are given to them just to keep their faces covered. And two other of their wings are used to cover their feet. Why? We're not told. And with two... They flew. Those are the two that make sense to me. They have two so they can fly. But with two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. If you look at that image, that means that even though they are bright and glowing and perhaps copper-colored and fiery, they cover themselves, top and bottom, and they fly. So in the presence of God, they are either shielding themselves or keeping themselves from looking upon the absolute holiness and purity of God. And then this is where we get the song, Holy, 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 is directly from verse 3, because one called out to another, which is interesting. It means that they are crying back and forth to themselves, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. This is a a little bit of a Hebraism. It is kind of like someone saying amen and amen. You would think that saying it once would kind of cover the amen. But the repetition is an emphasis. So God is not simply described as holy. But in order to emphasize the holiness of God, it is said three times. He's holy. And even his holiness is holy, and he is so supremely holy that he's extra holy in his holiness. I mean, how do we even grasp that? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. So then repeatedly, standing here talking about sovereign God through the years, I have said to you that the chief characteristic of God the characteristic that he emphasizes, the characteristic that is being sung about and cried about around his throne all the time. God could create creatures who would say or do whatever he wanted said or done and what he wanted said about himself. The one thing that he wanted declared about himself constantly around his throne was angels crying out to each other about the holiness of the God that sits on the throne. That is why I keep saying that is his primary attribute. Everything else that God says or does or thinks is all filtered through the fact that he's holy. 
and therefore there's no way that you can lay a charge against God even if you don't like the things that he says or does or thinks or has told you. All of those things are absolutely righteous and holy because they come from a holy, holy, holy God. Therefore, whatever God does is ipso facto holy. And you cannot charge him with error. You cannot charge him with sin. You cannot put God in a dock and try to accuse him of anything because he is the Holy One of Israel, and therefore everything he says or does or thinks or writes is holy. And that's the attribute that is announced before his throne. Just so you know what kind of God you're dealing with. He's got angels there introducing him as the Holy One. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. This doesn't seem like a very glorious planet right now. The only way that you can actually say that the whole world is full of his glory is if this whole world is working out exactly the way that he sovereignly determined that it was going to work out. Mm -hmm. And that would mean that even sin, even depravity, even the faults of this world all serve his ultimate purpose and all redound back to his ultimate glory that he is always in the enterprise of demonstrating his complete sovereign control over everything, over the whole universe, over every square inch of his creation. And because he has determined it the way that it is happening, it is actually all full of his glory because when he wraps it up, he's going to be able to demonstrate that it all turned out exactly the way that he meant for it to turn out, all to his glory. See, I did it. So holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. So then what happened? Well, then the foundations of the thresholds there in the temple trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then Isaiah quite rightly Falls down, which, by the way, is the right response. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Why would he begin with that conclusion? That's how very, very holy God is. And as soon as you come in touch, as soon as you come in contact with that level of actual, genuine righteousness, purity, and holiness, the first thing you know about yourself is you're not. You're not holy. You're not righteous. And he is the holy, righteous judge. And if he judges you on the basis of his holiness, you're, you're dead. So Isaiah rightly says, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. That's the first thing that he admits. He's admitting his sin. And he admits, I'm a man of unclean lips. We have seen so much material in the book of Proverbs about watch your tongue. Watch your lips. Watch your mouth. Watch what you say. Watch what you declare. Every idle word, says Jesus, Men are going to give account for every idle word. The amount of good and the amount of damage that you can do with your lips is just 
incomprehensible. And because of our sinful, depraved state, the vast majority of what we do with our lips is destructive because it's serving our ego, our pride, our desires. So the first thing that Isaiah recognizes about himself is, I'm unclean. And as, as my exhibit A of my uncleanness, just the way I talk is unclean, which I think is Isaiah's admission, I can't talk to this holy God. How do I speak to him? He's nothing but purity and righteousness and holiness. I can't begin to talk to this one. Which, by the way, long as we're here, and who knows when we'll ever be here again. Look at the difference once Christ comes, and then Paul writes things like, we go running to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. Look at Jesus saying, go and tell your father what you need. Go tell him. Everything. Your father knows what things you have need of, and it's his good pleasure to give you those things. That relationship is so very different. Here we are being told, go pray to God. Go talk to God. Go tell God. Go find your peace and your safety in God. Go admit to God. Go admit your sinfulness because he loves you and Christ is advocating for you the relationship now and the privilege to go talk to that righteous holy God even with our very impure lips is just a marvel of grace that God would allow us to go talk to him. Mm -hmm. Woe is me, I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips. And, second admission, I live among a people of unclean lips. Not only am I bad, but everybody I live with, the whole of Jerusalem, all the Jews, the nation, collectively we have all sinned against God I live among a people of unclean lips. And why is he so full of woe? Because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now that admission that he has seen the king at the moment that King Uzziah has died is one of the reasons that people try to make the connection that... Uzziah was sort of the high and lifted up king in Jerusalem, and he was the one that everybody gave credit to for the peace and safety and prosperity of Jerusalem. And so when he died, Isaiah got a glimpse of the real king, the king who lays behind all of it, the king who is sovereign on his throne, who rules over absolutely everything. There is a contrast to be had there. King Uzziah, temporary king in Jerusalem, he's dead, regardless of how successful he was. He's dead, regardless of how well he ruled, how godly he was, or how he failed at the end of his life. He's still dead, but then there's the real king. Isaiah used to go in and talk to the human king. Isaiah used to be in the king's court. Isaiah wrote about the things that that king did. That's what we read in, in the Chronicles of the Kings. But when it comes to this king, when it comes to the high and mighty king, when it comes to the genuinely sovereign and superior king, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. There's that phrase again, the Lord of everybody, 
the captain of everybody, the one who rules the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, the one who is in absolute control of everybody. I've seen him now, and woe is me. And that's the right response. That is the correct response to anybody who does not have somebody standing in the gap between them and that righteous holy God. You have no other option outside of woe is me because God is going to bring plenty of woe your way. If he sets out to judge you and you don't have an advocate, you don't have a mediator, then woe is you. Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the burning ones, one of the seraphim, flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. That means that it was so hot that even the burning one didn't want to touch it. He used tongs to get the burning coal off of the altar where it was burning. By the way, wonderful imagery that there is an altar there before God with burning coals on it. And you can see, again, why we are told in the book of Hebrews that the things that Moses was told to construct were all types and shadows and indications of the real things that existed in heaven. The idea of altars and of burning that we're introduced to in the Old Testament, they're not just random. They are foreshadows of what really goes on in the presence of God. So one of these burning ones flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. What just happened? Mm. Mediation. Somebody had to get between God and the sinner and the unclean man. And something had to happen to that man to change that man to alter the relationship between God and that man so that that man could speak to that holy God. And in order to do it, an angel, an intercessor, came in with a burning coal and touched his lips. Now, I heard not three weeks ago a presentation of this particular passage And the preacher said that for the rest of Isaiah's life, that he had a a permanent burn mark on his lips, a blister on his lips for the rest of his life. That intrigued me, so I went looking for any indication of that. I went looking for anything else that would say that that was true. Because if, if I could find it, that would be really a wonderful thing to present to you all right at this moment and say, yeah, and Isaiah went the rest of his life with this very visible mark on his lips from having had his lips burned before God. I just couldn't find it anywhere. There's no indication of it anywhere. I think it's something the preacher made up because, you know, preachers make things up. 
if somebody out there on the internet has some indication that that is true, by all means, please send it to me. I would like to know if that's true. But what we're told biblically is that a burning coal was placed on his mouth, and then he was told, behold, this, this piece of the altar of God, this piece of the sacrifice and burning before God has touched your lips. And then amazingly, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. It's astounding language, but that's the kind of mediation that is absolutely necessary in order for any human being to stand before an absolutely righteous, holy God. It's not enough to just say, you're temporarily all right. There has to be some payment. There has to be some redemption of the man's sin, of the man's iniquity, in order for him to stand in the holy presence of God. And you'll notice that Isaiah was not told, you're unclean, now get busy and clean yourself up. There's a bunch of stuff for you to do. For instance, run over there to that altar, grab yourself a coal, cram it into your mouth. I mean, there, there was none of that. The, Isaiah was not told to do anything because Isaiah was busy being fearful and saying, woe is me. Instead, the mediatorial work was done by God through a mediator. And that's the way it's always been. That's the way it always works. And that is foreshadowing Christ coming to the planet and doing the mediatorial work that makes it okay for human beings like us to stand in the presence of God. And not just to stand in the presence of God eternally, but at this very moment that we stand in the presence of God and are able to speak to him, are able to pray to him without fear of retribution, without fear that we're going to be judged, that we're going to fry because we have the presumption to go running into his presence. Instead, we are instructed and we are invited to come into the presence of God, to come to his throne of grace, and there we find our own father. And it is a result of God having a hand-picked mediator who did all the work necessary to mediate for us on our behalf so that we can then talk to the holy God. He does it. We can't do it. Yeah? Yes. Who needs amen? I'm going with yeah. <laughs> he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. I can't tell you the number of sermons I have heard misapply that verse. Because if you don't read everything that comes after it, then that sounds like a very positive instruction and commission from God as he sends preachers out into the world. And so I've heard men say rather boldly, with their chests puffed out and their arms akimbo, they have said that at some point they heard the call of God on their lives 
and they realized that God was sending them to be, Carol is over there nodding almost voraciously, that they heard the call and commission of God on their life, and they accepted that call, and they said, here I am, Lord, send me, because ultimately that story becomes about me. Becomes, here I am. Here, send me. It's all about me, and they claim that that's how it is that they entered the ministry. But as you continue to read in verse 6, and you read about the commission that Isaiah was given, it is a commission of blinding the people of Israel so that ultimately they will not recognize their Messiah. And that is exactly where we will start next week. Because it's going to take us at least a half hour to get through it and then look at all the New Testament applications of that commission so we'll pick it up next week. Questions? Nothing? Okay, well then the next time that I say I need somebody to do a uh, favor for me, I expect you all to say, send here am I, send, send Jeff. Yeah, so <laughs> I'm here to tell you Jeff's your guy. Yeah. All right, so no questions? I do. Yeah. Is this maybe the chief, the best example that we can point to in the, in the Bible as far as someone recognizing their lack of holiness or however you want to categorize that? I know this is always, you know, typically referenced in that case. But I think that's definitely one of the chief examples. But it, it's interesting enough that it only that only happens when he sees something that is truly holy. That's how he can recognize his own uncleanness and his own insufficiency as, as he sees the contrast. Yeah. Because left to ourselves, no, we think we're somewhat decent. We're going to justify ourselves. Right. But when you truly see holiness, then, oh yeah, this is, I'm unclean. I think I said earlier that uh, Isaiah fell down and actually it was Ezekiel, I talked about Ezekiel just before that. Yeah. I mean, Ezekiel got down before God, yeah, and then the Spirit of the Lord picked him up and put him on his feet, which is sort of the opposite of being slain in the Spirit. It's being picked up in the Spirit. When some popular evangelist raises people up off the floor onto their feet before God, that, that's when I'll be impressed. But yes, you're absolutely correct that it's only by way of contrast, I think, that human beings really sense their own sinfulness because we go through our whole lives feeling like we're pretty good, pretty adequate. There's nothing really wrong with us. If anything, we're just sort of neutral, but we're mostly good. And it's only when you come to grips with who God is, only when God interrupts your life and introduces himself to you, only then are you aware of your sin. People who don't adhere to the Bible or adhere to the things of God don't think they're sinful. And they think it would be wrong of God to judge them because they're pretty good. Because they have no concept of what actual true holiness is, what it looks like. And so part of what that holy God does for us is put his holy spirit inside us to start convicting us of our sinfulness and our depravity while our flesh is still busy telling us that we're not that bad. It's like 
if you've never seen light, you can't really comprehend what darkness truly is. Yeah. So you have to have the and if you've only seen darkness, you have no idea what light is. And that's how Genesis starts. It starts completely dark, and then here comes light, and God says, here I am. Yeah. Well, even natural science tells us that darkness is the result of the lack of energy. And so the natural state of everything is darkness. Left to itself, everything runs down, gets dark. And so it takes positive energy to create light, which is why it's so astounding to hear God say, let there be light, as he creates the energy that brings light into his universe. I mean, and why God himself is encased in a light that no man approaches. He is the source of all light. And so, yeah, you can go through the rest of your life in the darkness, spiritually. And unless he wakes you up, you'll never know what light is. And that describes much of the world. Well, according to Jesus, it describes the majority of the world. I've tried to be kind. <laughs> I'm a bone. <laughs> but you can see now why the Bible refers to saved people as children of light. Oh, yeah. That's a very important designation. We're people who have been not just woken up, but enlightened. That's very important language because it is that light of God that is enlightening us so that we are children of light and that we're told to walk in the light. So, in Revelation, God is our source of light. And God is the source of light, especially when we get to New Jerusalem and there's no more sun because God's the light. So the natural... Yeah, and the world loved darkness rather than light. Yeah. Absolutely. So yes, I can see Isaiah getting in front of an absolutely holy, holy, holy God. And the first thing he would realize is, I'm sinful, especially when compared to the magnificence of the Holy One. And God presents himself that way. That's another part of it that just amazes me is it's like, okay, God needs to, at this moment, present himself in some way to a human being, whether that was presenting himself to Moses or presenting himself to Ezekiel. Or, okay, there has to be some kind of theophany at this moment. And so however God presents himself at that moment, that's what he chose to do. If he chose to create a chariot of clouds, carrying a throne with wheels upon wheels full of eyes. That's what God came up with as, okay, that represents me pretty good. Or seraphim crying about his holiness. This is all the way that God presents himself on purpose when presenting himself to people. So he's clearly trying to tell us something about himself. And we do well to sit up and pay attention. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.